All right, hey, welcome back, everyone. Today's episode is Climate Change Part Two. Uh, now I have to admit, this is there's a lot of data. It's taking me a while to kind of get all these things together between work and uh, my wife and I are trying to put together a new kitchen, helping the kids finish up their school year. Considering the whole coronavirus has, you know, our high schooler, our middle schooler, and our elementary schooler all doing work from home which has kind of been pretty crazy. But uh, last episode, we covered how do humans know that we are impacting the climate, which the definitive answer is, yes, we know that there is uh, human-caused climate change or anthropogenic climate change. And we did this through a couple different means. First, we understood how the climate changes, which is the Milankovitch cycles and the Earth's distance away from the sun, as well as our tilt. We learned that when the Earth is farther away and tilted away, we are in a glacial cycle. And when we were closer to the sun and tilted towards it, we are in an interglacial cycle. We are in the current interglacial cycle known as the Holocene period, which is a slightly warmer uh, interglacial cycle, which means we'll see sig- most likely significantly warmer temperatures during this time period. Uh, we also learned that we took we, we, we validated these theories through uh, ice samples in the Arctic as well as uh, taking deep uh, sediment samples in the ocean. Now, if you haven't seen that episode to really understand all the details, I'd highly recommend you go back and watch that episode first. In today's episode, we're going to cover valid concerns over the climate. Um, understanding why we should be looking at the data and why the data is so important, understanding the global climate system. I think people tend to uh, simplify it far too much. And in that case, we'll we'll look at both water, H2O, as well as CO2 and other greenhouse gases and their effect on the global climate. We'll we'll look at evidence of the paleoclimatological record on what these greenhouse gases have done to our planet in the past and kind of what we can expect will happen in the future. Uh, And then we'll take a deeper look at probably the second most important greenhouse gas, which is CO2, to really understand what are its effects on the planet. I think CO2 gets a really bad rep. Most people don't seem to understand it very well. So hopefully we'll take a deeper dive on the positives and negatives of CO2, as well as what happens if you take too much out of the atmosphere and what happens if you get too much into the atmosphere. So all of that is on today's episode. Okay. Uh, hey, if you like this content, please subscribe, hit the like button. Uh, this is on YouTube as well as on Apple podcast. I, I highly recommend some of these videos you watch on the YouTube format, specifically because I do show a lot of plots and graphs. And I think that it's a lot uh, more um, cohesive to the conversation if you're paying attention to the data. And the data in the graphs really makes kind of a difference. So the the first thing we're going to start off with right now is understanding some of the major concerns around climate change. Because I think this is important. So last time we kind of solidified that we do know that the current... Uh, output of CO2 gases as well as other greenhouse gases into our atmosphere is causing the current rise in temperature. Okay, This is, again, anthropogenic climate change. We know it's real. We understand that the temperature is deviating away from the solar data. Um, But, uh, you know, is is that a bad thing? And we went over the fact that we are in an interglacial cycle that's significantly longer, and the the planet will continue to warm up like it has in the past. So if you go look at the historical temperature record for planet Earth, it has been significantly warmer in the past. Now, why do we think that the temperature warming is going to be such a significant impact, or why do we think that there's so so many problems with it? Well, that's really the rate of change. 
So historically, if you look at most of the the data, it typically takes 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 100,000 years, 200,000 years for many of these larger swings in temperature across the planet. And so if they're happening instead in a couple of hundred years, the big problem with that is you're going to have a massive amount of change in a short period of time, and many species may not be able to adapt to that. Now, will humans adapt to that? Probably. I mean, we're a very adaptive species. You know, we, we have jackets when we're cold. Uh, you know, we install air conditioning when we're hot. So humans will continue to adapt to the natural environments around us. However, I don't think you can say the same thing about many species. So a good example of that is if you go to the polar regions up by the North Pole, you have glacial foxes uh, and polar bears. Well, if they lose all of their natural habitats, how will they survive? Now, if you look at a lot of... Uh, biology, many species that have short lifespans tend to adapt really, really well. So those aren't really the concerns. The bigger concerns are creatures that live for 50, 100, you know, even even longer than 100 years old, because these species are not going to be able to adapt to the, the, the temperature changes as well as species that have much shorter life lifespans. The second thing is rising sea levels. So if you go look at the South Pacific, there are actually islands that have disappeared in the last couple decades. So if you go back to 1940 during World War II, there is a massive amount of islands that were actually charted in the South Pacific. Most of those islands aren't even there anymore. Uh, and that's a problem because there's very unique species that live on all of those different island chains. And so as the sea levels rise and those island habitats disappear, the life on those islands disappear with it and they will be lost to you know the 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 paleon uh, paleontological record, we'll, we'll never see them again. Uh, now now the core species of the planet will survive in some of the larger land masses, but all those minor species and, and different variations of species will will be gone. Um, and so you know these are two of the major concerns. Now the the question comes up: How do we prevent climate change? How do we stop climate change? Well, I think that's the wrong question. Because the climate is going to continue to change. And th this is the wholly, highly politicized topic that we got to be really careful about is, yes, the climate is always changing. Yes, we're in a long, longer interglacial time period, which means the temperature of the planet is going to be going up for a significantly longer period of time. And yes, species adapt over time. Okay, so are we going to stop climate change? Are we going to stop the polar ice caps from melting? Are we going to stop? The answer is no, we're not going to stop it. But the problem isn't in stopping it. The problem is in the time period in which these events are going to occur. And because the time periods are so short, species cannot adapt. Well, so our question should be, is how do we minimize the human impact on climate change, which if you go back to last week's episode where we were talking about how humans are dumping massive amounts of CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we're seeing that at this point in Earth's history, those greenhouse gases are having the largest effect on the temperature. And so by minimizing our impact on that, we can slow the rise in temperature to allow more time for other species to adapt. Um, and, and so that's that's really where the focus needs to be and understanding what the major concern with climate change is, is just these radical changes over a short period of time. If you look at his, historically, species have done well almost at any major climate uh, variation over Earth's history, at least since major species kind of showed up on this planet. So, so there's no real concern about life continuing uh, into the future. The concern is 
how how massive is the devastation and can we prevent most of that devastation now okay so understanding the data is super important and and it's not because we're trying to deny climate change i think you really need to understand that denying climate change is 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 fruitless because we we've, we've shown that climate change exists period and that we've shown that humans are 99.99999% most likely responsible for the current temperature changes. Okay, so so the data shows that. The question is, is what does the other data show for the possible ramifications of that so that we can understand where our focus needs to be? Now, this is where I'm kind of sitting in the middle and w- with a lot of other scientists, is that the evidence and the models that show some of these drastic extremes... Um, doesn't necessarily support the alarmist case either. Some of it does, absolutely. Sea levels are rising, islands are disappearing. Uh, there's there's way more flooding during coastal areas. So there are problems. There are serious problems. But we really need to understand the data so that we can focus on the right solutions to fix those problems. I've been in a lot of conversations where people are like, don't you need to stop minimizing climate change and the the, the impact on climate? And and my answer is, well, why? You you should minimize the scare tactics and you should maximize the actual things that we can impact and make a change in, so that we can make the right policy decisions to impact the correct level of change. Okay, and and again, it's not denying that that climate change doesn't exist and it's not saying that the entire world is going to come to an end. Now, I know that saying the world is going to come to an end is this kind of an extreme perspective. And most people don't think that the world is going to end. But a lot of the, the problems aren't necessarily as bad as some of the models early earlier models have predicted. Okay, and then that's important. So I don't I don't think that that uh, fear mongering is an effective tactic for affecting good change. I think that good data and understanding problems is a good way to enact change. And this has happened, by the way. There are people um, like uh, Boyan Slats, who is literally in the process of cleaning all of the Earth's oceans of plastic, and he plans on having all of them cleaned in the next five years because it's one man with one vision, and he's starting an entire set of companies to go do it. These are the things that are going to have more drastic impact on things rather than this alarmism. It's having real people, boots on the ground, fixing these problems. All right, with all of that being said, let's now get into the global climate system, okay? So I really hate how people oversimplify how the climate works because it's not simple. And it's not just as simple as CO2 keeps all the heat in and we get too hot. We've already been over in the last episode how you have the Milinkovic cycles that determine how much energy solar radiation that the earth is getting. Now that is a part of it. So here's here's a diagram that kind of covers the entire system as a whole. And so you can see the sun in that top left-hand corner, which is kind of the start starting point for how the entire system works. And by the way, this could get way more complex. A lot of these areas break down into dozens of subcategories and I've been doing a lot of research on all this, but but I like this diagram because it shows enough of the complexity and enough of the information where it doesn't kind of get overwhelming. But it still shows that the system is is, is complex. So I, I got this from um, Dr. Willie Soon's presentation on climate change. And he's with the Harvard-Smithsonian Institute. And d- don't get me wrong, I, I think he's one of the scientists that is more leaning towards climate change is happening, but it's not necessarily something that we should be concerned with. Okay, so he really tries to break down the science really well, and I appreciate his his effort I don't necessarily think it covers all the potential problems that we're going to have to deal with, but it, it definitely helps you understand how the entire uh, in, or uh, 
the energy system works, okay? So solar radiation comes in, and we talked about that before, uh, and we absorb a certain amount of that sunlight. Now, how much of the energy that we absorb is this thing that you see right below the absorption of the sunlight, which is called albedo. So albedo directly affects how much sun we are absorbing uh, based on the reflectivity of the surface of the Earth. Now, the reflectivity is, is impacted by two primary concepts. The number one one, or the number one is the land and water albedo. So different pieces of land or different reflectivity and water reflects uh, light. So those can get reflected, but also the ice and snow area. So the mo more ice and snow that you have, the more of the solar radiation is just flat out reflected. The other thing is, is something called transmissivity, transmissivity, reflectivity. Okay. So now this is, this is predominantly focused by, or impacted by the optical properties of the atmosphere, uh, which is just the composition of the atmosphere. You know how our, our atmosphere scatters blue light. So the, the optical properties of our atmosphere, as well as the cloud cover. Now cloud covers all this other stuff down below that we'll kind of get into in a minute here. But the cloud cover has a huge impact on how much actual radiation is absorbed by our planet. The, the greater the cloud cover, the less uh, solar radiation that we absorb. We just you know push it all off. And you can feel this when you got a cloudy day, temperatures drop. Right. And that's just because there's less solar radiation that's making it down to the lower atmosphere. OK, so that's that's a big concept here. Now, obviously, the amount of absorbed sunlight, how much we actually have has a direct impact on temperature and temperature can affect a whole bunch of other things. Right. Which uh, the temperature can affect the, the how much snow we have. It can affect the uh, the surface vapor that we have, which can lead to. Uh, change in precipitation, which can change into uh, mixing with ocean water, which can be affected by the types of winds that we have, well, those winds and the ocean water mix, and we end up with some level of evaporation, that level of evaporation cause extra precipitation. Uh, those also cause additional cloud coverage to form, which makes it an entire climate cycle. So there's this huge cycle of temperature come or radiation comes in, radiation causes things to warm up, that causes other impacts on uh, the other things in our environment, predominantly water, uh, those evaporate, evaporation causes clouds and precipitation, those things impact the over temperature, temperature kind of lowers or, or increases based on that, as well as how much additional heat we absorb or reflect. So the one takeaway that, that, that we need to look at when we're, we're looking at this diagram is how many of the entire global system is impacted by water. So I'm going to highlight a bunch of boxes in blue. And as you can see, almost every single major stage in the climate system is impacted by water. Water is the major actor and people minimize that. People always say it's, you know, the greenhouse gases have a huge effect. Well, well, that's not entirely true. Water has the biggest impact on the entire global energy system. Now, what pieces does CO2 have? Well, that is this little tiny box down here underneath the outgoing radiation, which is the atmospheric composition. So the atmospheric composition determines how much radiation we are keeping inside of the atmosphere. Again, that's how much we keep but we've already reflected a whole bunch of it. And the more the temperature rises, we reflect a whole bunch more, which means we're actually keeping less heat in because we're actually absorbing less heat. So CO2 plays a part. Greenhouse gases absolutely play a part, but water is the bigger player. And I think what you really need to understand is more on the paleoclimatological timescale. So I'll put this graph up again. And this graph really shows that you see 
CO2 greenhouse gases going up and down. There's periods of really low CO2 gas historically where global temperatures are really high. And there's areas where there's CO2 that's really high where the global temperatures are really low. And so again, this is all goes back to correlation does not mean causation. Okay. There's many places in earth's history where the atmospheric composition does not directly impact the total temperature on the planet. It's a piece of it. Sure, but not the major actor. Now, as we covered last week, right now, in our current point in history, CO2 is a major actor. And that's an important distinction. I'm not saying that CO2 doesn't impact the weather. Absolutely it does. And I'm not saying it doesn't impact the temperature. Absolutely it does. But only for a limited time window when it becomes the biggest actor. So in a system, certain variables have bigger sways over the system at different time periods for different reasons. And as of right now in human history, or in, in, in Earth's history specifically, CO2 and greenhouse gases have the largest effect. But that's not going to always be the case, and nor has it always been the case. So that's, that's just important to really kind of grasp that idea, that CO2 can have a big impact for a short period of time based on the current time window that we are in. Okay? Um, all right, so... Another thing that I want to point about this this graph here is that the historical temperature uh, seems to have a, a a a maximum average, and there there's 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 a specific thermal maximum at one point in, in in global history that kind of exceeds that, and that's called the thermal maximum of that time period. But there is a point where because we have so much water on this planet, water really prevents the temperature from spiking to these huge levels of degrees. And that is water is the most predominant greenhouse gas. It controls the weather system the most. And you look at this historically, we will get to a maximum where our temperature our, our temperatures are not going to exceed most likely 22 degrees Celsius. Now, that's very far, far off from where we are today. So right now, we're at about 13 degrees global averages, and people are concerned about us getting to 15 or 18 degrees global averages. Now, that's a five-degree difference, but even above that, four degrees higher than that is, four degrees higher than that is, is, is this maximum level that our H2O seems to allow the atmosphere to get. Even if you have 4,000 to 8,000 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, which are crazy amounts, by the way, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, what that what that means is, is we'll most likely top out at 22 degrees Celsius. But, but you're saying, but isn't that insane temperature? No, those are averages, okay? And the other thing that you need to really look at as a part of that original diagram on the weather system is this concept of temperature gradients, okay? So you have temperature gradients throughout the atmosphere on a global level. And as we look at the his, history of Earth, there has been less of a gradient. So right now we're at a point in our history where there's pretty big extremes between the polar regions, like the Antarctica that never gets above zero, the, uh, so the Antarctic regions, the Arctic regions, which, you know, they kind of fluctuate right around that, that the melting point, And they end up with the equatorial regions around the earth that, that get, that stay warm most of the time. They're, you know, 90 to 110 degrees on average. Those, those are warm periods or warm areas of our, of our planet. However, as, as temperatures rise, you'll see significantly more precipitation and cloud cover, which will do two things, okay? Number one, it'll even out the temperature gradient, which means the poles will be much closer to temperature as the equator. So again, much, much less of a gradient, much even, more even temperature, which means you won't end up with these huge spikes around the equatorial regions because 
there's cloud cover. The cloud cover will prevent their spikes in temperatures and you'll have a much more even temperature across the entire planet. So, so this is what a lot of scientists like Dr. Soon try to get at in understanding where the climate may go. So our averages may go up. The poles may continue to rise in temperature, but the overall average will not exceed 22 degrees Celsius. And that's mostly because the polar regions will get warmer, not that the equatorial regions will get super, super hot. They'll probably actually stay relatively the same. They might even get a little bit cooler as the rest of the planet warms up to kind of evenly match it. So that's something really good to understand about what the future of the planet by looking at our past is that there is this 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 22 degree point where we'll probably get to at some point in the next 20,000 years we'll warm up to that point um, and that'll be across the entire planet as an averages but you won't end up with these huge spikes and this can be seen through time periods like the Cretaceous period so the Cretaceous period the entire planet earth was like a gigantic swamp you know, really warm tropical rain, rainforest from, from equatorial region to polar caps. So that means, again, the equatorial regions come down in temperature and the polar caps raise in temperature, meaning the global average goes up, but it doesn't, it doesn't like get so hot that life can't exist here. Okay. If, if that makes sense. So, so that's really important to understand how that whole system works. Water is the predominant factor. So, so why does CO2, why is CO2 so important to people. Why do people react so vehemently when you start talking about CO2? Well, that's because CO2 has other major impacts on our planet. So now understanding CO2, um, let's, let's understand, first of all, what, what the current levels are. Okay, so the current levels, <laughs> paper keeps falling. The current levels are about 400 parts per million. So we're right at 400 parts per million. And, and that's actually a, a pretty low point considering what CO2 levels have been historically on our planet, okay? So prior to the O2 expansion, prior to plants being being here on Earth, there was massive amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere, probably about 200 parts per million. 200,000, sorry, 200,000 parts per million CO2 in our atmosphere. Now that kind of fell over time as volcanic activity went down and you ended up with, uh, you know, plants consuming the CO2 and turning that into oxygen. Then our oxygen levels came up and then you ended up with animal life forming. So animals started actually consuming the oxygen, producing CO2. But there's this kind of slightly negative uh, balance in the total equilibrium, meaning CO2 levels have dropped. Now, CO2 is really important for a healthy biosphere, and this is because, as we just talked about, plants consume it as a part of photosynthesis to, to, to live. So our planet is the green planet, and well, the blue planet, but it's, it's a very green planet compared to other planets because we're the only ones with plants as far as we know. And, and that's because we have CO2. So CO2, I really hate how people demonize CO2. Oh, CO2 is this whole horrible, evil thing. Well, it's not, actually. CO2 is the lifeblood of this planet because it is what has allowed all plant life on this planet to form, period. Okay, you need CO2. Um, and But but there is a higher level, right? There, there There is too much CO2, and that's not the current concern with climate change. You know, people like to think about, you know, having this runaway greenhouse effect and how the end of the world will happen, but we, we can get into the data in, in a little bit on why I think that's probably not going to happen. But, you know, up until about 4,000 parts per million, you know, humans and animals live really, really well because plants thrive. Okay, and so let's 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 kind of look at this. So I want to look at uh, how CO two affects plant life, how it affects animals, how it affects our oceans, 
what happens when there's too little CO2 and then what happens when there's too much CO2 and can you end up with a runaway greenhouse effect, okay? So first off, CO2 in terms of plant life. So we look back about 30 million years ago and there's, there's a genetic change in the metabolisms of plants. So prior to 30 million years ago, there was typically over 800 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And then at that time period, it dropped below 400 parts per million. Now, this, this caused a genetic change that's called from a C3 metabolism to a C4 metabolism for plants. Plants that are in the C4 category, they make up about 15% of the biosphere, and they do extremely well between 400 and 1,000 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, okay? And again, these, adapt, the, the, these started showing up about, you know, 30 million years ago. Now... The other plants, the C3 plants, which make up 85% of our biosphere, they do really well between 1,000 and 2,000 parts per million in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere, which means they, they are not um, doing super well based on the global CO2 averages, okay? They are minimized. There's a lot of variation across the planet, but they don't typically do well. This 15% does really well at the current CO2 levels, okay? Now, most of our food supply is actually in that C3 level. So most C3 plants are what humans eat for food as our primary food consumption. Now, if our current levels are 400 and most plants, especially our food, does better between 1,000 and 2,000 parts per million, then what's the problem with raising CO2 levels? Well, again, it goes back to the, the short period of time that, that we're going to increase temperatures and not allow civilizations to adapt. But, but or ecosystems to adapt. But what does that mean for the plant life on this planet? Well, it means that plant life is going to get significantly better. So let's take a quick look at the last 200 years, okay? So in the late 1800s, early 1900s, plants weren't doing very well on this planet because CO2 levels were, you know, down in the 300 levels or 300, 300 parts per million, okay? And so there, there wasn't a, a ton of growth across the planet plant-wise. We are coming out of an ice age, all right, uh, you know, we've been coming out of an ice age for the last couple thousand years, and the, the, the planet is getting warmer, which is good. Um, so, so plants are doing better, but they're not doing as well as they could, right? And so the other thing that happened is humans. So we, we started burning trees for fuel in our houses, and so we started cutting down a lot of tree life. And so as the human populations over the 1900s started growing, we started seeing mass deforestation as we started cutting down more and more trees, literally just burning all of them for fuel to keep our, our, our uh, you know, houses warm, as well as building supplies and, and all the other things that we use wood for, okay? So somewhere in the, you know, the 1940s to 1950s, we started shifting a huge major shift across the entire country. It probably, you could probably argue that it started more, more down in you know, the 1930s. We started shifting more to coal, okay, and, and oil and gas production. So then we started oil and gas production. Well, we, we started drilling and mining for these types of things, and we started cutting down less trees. So we had less of an impact on trees because we started moving away from trees as a primary fuel source. Well, that's even done better today. So in the last 30 years, we almost don't use trees from the wild. Most trees are sustainably farmed. Uh, there's many, many uh, countries across the planet that are actually planting trees. So we end up with more forests. So what is, what is the net result of changing technology away from burning trees so that now we're on nuclear as well as solar and wind, as well as all these you know other potential renewables in the future? What does that mean? Well, it means that the planet has actually gotten 
a lot greener. Now it's it's there's two parts to that green green piece. So there's the part that we we stop cutting everything down, and then there's the also the part that humans have been dumping massive amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. So this has had a positive effect. And so here's a graph from NASA that shows over the last 100 years, we have increased the total biosphere of plant life on planet Earth. This is just data. Take it for how you want, okay? Um, But we've increased the equivalence of an entire Amazon rainforest across the entire globe. Now that's 5% across the globe. That means where you live, tree, you know, there's 5% more plant life from year to year that's in North America, that's in South America, that's in Asia and, and uh, India and all, all Europe. So you, you probably haven't noticed the 5% change. Maybe you've noticed that summers are a little bit greener, but you haven't noticed too much beyond that. But that 5% equates globally to an entire Amazon rainforest. And I'm going to tell you this, based on the data from NASA, that's just going to continue. The world is going to get greener and greener and greener over the next several hundred years because we keep dumping CO2 in the atmosphere and all of the vegetation on this planet consume that CO2. So that's positive. That is not bad. But there's also other positives that come from that. Because we are restoring natural habitats, because humans are backing out of them and actually replanting trees, in addition to the fact that there's just more greenery in general, general, there are plenty of people and scientists that have noted that many things, that many species that we thought were endangered are actually coming back. There was a recent study in China that was discussing this where they found the largest population ever of snow leopards that they thought were mostly completely extinct. And they found them, and they were very surprised that they had come back. In addition to that, uh, China has found that golden pheasants and red foxes and roe deer, they're, they're all coming back in staggering population numbers, specifically because all of their forests are getting greener and humans are kind of just leaving them alone. Okay, So there's huge positive impacts to the planet based on rising CO2 levels. So CO2 levels are good for planet Earth. Okay, Now, where, where's... Where is the upper limit? Well, we don't know. I mean, we, we do know based on how CO2 affects animals and plants. So again, the, the plants typically do well between 400 and 1,000. Those are those uh, C4 metabolism. 1,000 and 2,000, those are those C3 metabolism plants. Humans typically can do okay. In, in Breathing inside is in a house with a lot of people is probably about 2,000 parts per million on average. The global NASA recommendation for a daily dose of CO2 is about 9,000 parts per million. So you're talking about substantially higher levels of CO2 than we have now. And since the global average is increasing about two and a half, three percent per year at the current rate, um, you have a long time until you hit those unhealthy limits. So you have this huge range of from 400 parts per million where we are now to about 2000 parts per million where there's a huge positive impact to most of the biosphere on this planet. That, that's a huge range. And it also means that we have a lot of time to try to curb that, 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 that exhaust of greenhouse gases to minimize our impact on the temperature. There, there is positive growth in that time period. There are good things. And the reason I bring this up is because I can't tell you how many times I've heard the argument for, hey, we need to create these huge scrubbers to pull as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as possible. Or, hey, how about we throw nanites out there? Okay, well, the problem is is there's, there's a lower limit where, where CO2 is very, too little CO2 is very dangerous for this planet. And we'll get to that in a minute. So again, higher levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, more green, more animals. Uh, The plant life as a whole 
seems to be doing really well with higher levels. But what does that mean for our oceans? Because you've heard of ocean acidification. Back in the 90s, um, you know, you, you had Al Gore and a whole bunch of uh, climate activists that were really concerned with the acid levels in the ocean. And so they did a bunch of early experiments in the 90s where they increased the acid levels with a bunch of animals in an aquarium, and most of these acid levels just ate away all the shells and a lot of the, the, the calcification as a part of those animals, and they just didn't do very well. They, they, they died. Um, however, there has been quite a few interesting studies that have been going on over the last couple years. And so what these studies have shown is actually kind of uh, a pros and cons effect to uh, increase CO2 levels. So the new experiments are handled completely differently. They have taken aquariums and then just upped the CO2 levels associated with those aquariums over a longer period of time. So you can allow the water to naturally get more acidic and then watch what happens to the sea life as a part of that acidification increase. And so what they found is that, yes, there are certain species that couldn't handle the acidification. And these include coral reefs, right? So coral reefs do really bad in increased acid levels. However, other species did really, really well. And so there was sea urchins, crabs, lobsters, calcifying algae, and krill actually ended up not only living, but also flourishing and getting substantially larger. So again, if you go back to the uh, paleontology and you go, go look at history, right? We know that many species in the ocean were much larger in the past. And so all this shows is that some species do better in low acid levels and other species do much better in higher acid levels. And so there's this pro and con that we don't really talk about. Now, our fundamental understanding of ocean ecosystems today is that the coral reefs are the, the, the foundation for most ocean ecosystems. And, and I'm not going to deny that. that. That's an important thing. And ocean acidification is going to cause problems with that. Um, and we can control, if we can control the CO2 levels over the next, you know, 20, 30 years, if we help a lot of the third world countries, uh, well, second world countries, I don't know what you call them these days because they're, they're, they're not really third world. But you look at uh, India and China and all these next world countries and, you know, they, they output a lot of these greenhouse gases versus the first world countries. So you look at most of Europe and America, our CO2 levels, we're actually doing a good job at curving how much uh, greenhouse gases we're dumping to the atmosphere. If we help these other uh, countries, then you won't have as much CO2, which means you can slow down the acidification of the oceans, which could allow the oceans to adapt much substantially better. Again, potentially allowing other species to become the bedrock of the ocean ecologies, not just uh, the coral reefs. But again, pros and cons, understanding that some species will do very badly in increasing acid levels and other species will do really, really well in increasing acidity levels of the oceans. Okay, so our real goal should be trying to understand where we can make positive impacts to the ecosystems that we have, um, as well as minimize our our, um, greenhouse gas effect. I I think that's something that we should probably do. Absolutely. Um, But we really need to understand that there is inevitable change. And since change is inevitable, we should just be focusing on allowing the ecosystems to get through this change rather than trying to prevent the change entirely because I don't think we can necessarily change you know prevent it entirely. So let's 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 get to the last section on CO2 which I think is important. So what is the lowest limit of CO2 which is why I think you know trying to scrub CO2 of the atmosphere is a bad idea and what is the highest 
rates of CO2 that we could see that could potentially be dangerous? And is there a chance of, of a runaway greenhouse effect? So there's this thing called, there's a guy named James Lovelock. And James Lovelock ha, is, is uh, a famous scientist. And one of the things he talks about is the Lovelock limit. So the Lovelock limit says that if CO2, based on understanding C3 and C4 metabolisms of plants, if you got under 150 parts per million, essentially no C3 plant life would survive. So that's 85% of all plants. And then the 15% of plants that would survive would get diminishingly smaller to the point of not being able to maintain a healthy biosphere. So essentially you're talking about a mass extinction event at 150 parts per million. Now the last ice age, we got very, you know, you, you look at the, the, the record of CO2 across this planet, one of the lowest times in our history for CO2 was during this last ice age. We got to a, 180 parts per million. 180 parts per million. You're talking about 30 parts per million away from hitting that lower love lock limit, which could have ended all life on this planet. So I don't think 400 parts per million is a dangerous place for the planet to be at. I think there's a lot of evidence to say that even a little higher than that is probably healthy for us. Um, but we really got to be careful as a species to understand that taking CO2 out of the atmosphere is a very tedious, careful thing because there is a lower limit where you can cause just as much damage by taking too much out than having enough for the biosphere to survive. So again, I really want to emphasize uh, CO2 is not a demon. It's not a bad guy. It is what has allowed life on this planet to exist and we need to maintain CO2 in our atmosphere. The question is, is how do we allow the the natural balance to maintain equilibrium without necessarily having humans cause too much of an imbalance to in increase, you know, global temperature changes over a short period of time. So, so lastly, I want to talk about the, the whole concept of a runaway greenhouse effect. Okay. So many people look at Venus and say, say, Hey, look, Venus, we, we could end up like Venus. Well, the first thing I want to cover is as of today, uh, Venus has 290,000 times, the CO2 that Earth does. That, that's a lot of CO2. And there is no way at current record that we could go and produce those levels of CO2 in our atmosphere. And even during the pre-O2 stages, even, even prior to plant life consuming CO2 and generating O2, back when we had higher levels, about 219,000 parts per million, 219 parts per million, we didn't see a runaway greenhouse effect. So you can safely say that CO2 could get up to 200,000 parts per million in our atmosphere, and we most likely won't experience a runaway greenhouse effect. No, but, but why is that? If we got higher levels of, levels of CO2, obviously we would potentially have a, a runaway greenhouse effect. Well, no, we wouldn't. Back to the whole climate system, you, you start getting those higher levels of CO2, you end up with global, you know, overall warmer weather. You're going to end up with more precipitation in the atmosphere. You're going to end up with higher cloud coverage. That higher cloud coverage is going to stop the solar radiation. So you're going to end up with significantly less solar radiation, even if you could get to levels of much higher CO2. The other thing is, is we're twice as far away from the sun as Venus. In, in, in terms of proportional distance to how much solar radiation we get, we get literally half the solar radiation that Venus does. Which means if Venus could start a runaway greenhouse effect at 200,000 parts per million, then we would potentially need double that or more to start a runaway greenhouse effect because of our distance away from the sun. So for us to have a runaway greenhouse effect, one of two things or two things would need to happen. Number one, we need the Earth to move significantly closer to the sun so that we can end up with significantly more solar radiation. And two, we would need massive amounts of CO2, potentially more than we've ever had in the history of this planet in our atmosphere, which are both very unlikely scenarios. 
So the likelihood of humans over the next couple hundred years causing a runaway greenhouse effect is pretty much zero. Anyways, so I hope I hope we've kind of uh, done a good job at, at covering that stuff today. So again, today, what did we discuss? Well, we discussed concerns about the, claim, the, the climate changing. There are some very serious concerns, and we'll cover a lot of that stuff in the next episode. Um, understanding why data is good, because good data allows us to have uh, good policies. It's not good to make all of your decisions on bad data or, or just like a uh, runaway greenhouse effect. It's, 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 it's not conducive to the success of us solving this problem by saying CO2 is the evil bad guy and we're going to end all life on this planet and there's going to be this runaway greenhouse effect and we're going to look like Venus. That's not even on the table. We shouldn't talk about it. We shouldn't care about it. It's not a concern that we should have. We should be focusing on the real problems that we can solve and the real impacts that we can make as a species on this planet. Okay, uh, we did take some time to understand how the global climate systems work. We understand that H2O, kind of the big dog in the room, he manages all of the temperatures across the planet, especially the higher end as uh, you know the temperatures go up over time. We also understood that we're probably not going to slow down climate change or we're not going to stop climate change. We can slow it down. We can slow it down. We just won't stop it. And, and slowing it down is important because that allows all of the species on the planet to adapt. It also allows us as a species, as humans, to adapt substantially better because most of our cities are on port cities. Most of the human populations live next to the ocean. And if ocean levels go up, then we have to move our cities. Now, we'll kind of cover that in the next episode because I think we have a lot of time to do that. I think time is our friend in this particular case, but it is, it is a very real threat. Um, we did understand that CO2 does have an impact, and it is at that stage in the climate where it has the greatest impact, but that impact is 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 minimized to this specific time period based on where we are in the climate cycles. And we talked about how CO2 is really important for a healthy biosphere and that we need to stop demonizing it because too low is too bad, too high is probably improbable, and there is probably a healthy region somewhere in between that allows for a maximum healthy biosphere across the entire planet. Okay. So, Hey, I hope you learned something. I hope uh, you found this episode valuable next week. Um, we're going to look, continue to look into the data because I think continuing to look in the data is really, really important. Um, and we will understand better some of the repercussions of climate change. Cause as I said before, with rising sea levels, there are a lot of problems, but the, the question I have is there's a lot of predictions that the models make. So if you look at the, the, the predictive models today, they talk about increasing storm systems. They talk about um, more global fires. They talk about famines. So there's, there's a lot of um, predictions that these models make, and we will look at the data to see how the data fits the potential predictions over the last you know uh, 20 to 50 years. In addition to that, we'll also look at what some of the biggest challenges humanity will be facing, as well as what some of the best opportunities for solutions to the problems that we have will be in the near future. Okay? So, hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I hope to see you next week. And if you haven't seen our last episode, please feel free to go check us out on Apple, iTunes, or on uh, YouTube. Hey, thanks for joining us on Perspectives. <laughs>